The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? <laughs> Halloween is a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host, editor in chief Michael Rothman, and if you listen closely, you can hear the gentle orchestra of the cicadas singing their last summer songs as the season comes to an end. But so is our time in Derry, as this week's episode marks the finale of our coverage of It Chapter 2. Before we go, we're heading back to the sewers one last time for two very special interviews. Our first is with composer Benjamin Walfish, who walks us through his two epic scores, offering some incredible insight into the music that's made us cry as much as it's made us recoil and tear. After that, we'll reunite with director Andy Muschietti, who shares a wealth of trivia not only about the two chapters, but what's in store for a proposed supercut he's currently working on. We think it's a pretty fitting conclusion to our vacation in Derry, so grab your rain boots, maybe even a raincoat, and head into the gray water with the Losers Club. Hello, is this Mr. Wolfish? Yes, yeah, speaking. Hi, this is Michael Rothman from Consequence of Sound and the Losers Club podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi. Good. How are you doing? Excellent. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Well, the the film is now in theaters. The two part epic right. is complete. How do you feel about it? Are you mm-hmm. uh, are you happy that, that this journey is complete? Do you feel a little sad, nostalgic? Uh, what are your feelings right now? <laughs> there's definitely a sense of uh yes uh, it's 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 always sad when something this huge comes to an end uh in terms of you know it's been a two and a half year journey for me and when i i just feel so fortunate and you know honored to have been a part of it. and the collaboration you, you build with uh with a filmmaker like andy machetti and barbara machetti they've become such dear friends um and you know the 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 losers club as a as a group yeah, the the film is so is so rooted in friendship mm-hmm. and um that that sense of what happens when you know people come together with a single purpose and yeah so i i, I think i I'm, I'm just incredibly excited that the the movie is finally out in the world and uh yeah and also whenever i finish a, a film i love it there's always a sense of yeah. uh, you know that feeling when you when you finish a fantastic book and you just don't want to you know turn that last page oh absolutely uh, yeah no i mean and honestly this is it's just such an affecting score and i i i always can tell that there's a, a personal favorite of mine when i can use the score for writing or for you know to be around the house Granted, there are definitely moments of this score where I, I definitely jump and, um, you know, turn my head a little bit if I'm like cleaning around the house and have it playing. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. there, it's, it's just it's so emotional and it's so uh, gripping in all the right ways. And, you know, and I, and I wondered, you know, going into this, did you see it, you know, both chapters as a horror film, a blockbuster, a drama? Like, you know, does genre even uh, inform your approach at all when you're composing? I saw it very much as, as an adventure film mm-hmm. and one that's anchored in a story about young people uh, coming of age through a process where they, they are forced to, to confront their, their deepest fears. Um, and they do so in the context of already feeling like outcasts. Mm-hmm. And so they, they create their own family uh, in the form of what becomes the Losers Club. 
um, just in, in, in the context that, you know, they are anyway trying to find meaning in their lives. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to literally, they realize the difference between being together is life and death. Uh, and the fact that they have to defeat something unimaginably horrifying because it, it knows how to get under the individual skin of each of them. Um, there, there's something so potent where you have to anchor the musical storytelling in what is effectively the nature of friendship and mm-hmm. the nature of of a found family and, and, and the very distinct kind of love that that is. Um, and and then go from that to these, these really visceral uh you know visceral amount of um drama and and, and horror and and I, I guess the, the way to to draw those two, two things together was to think of it in terms of it's an adventure yeah. it's an adventure story but it's it's a story which which has incredible subtext and depth and um and the music just needed to kind of I just always was just trying to live up to the movie and it's and it's incredible scale and ambition. Um and you know, Andy's style of filmmaking is he, he never holds back from from emotion. he he will always want to uh he puts that first in, mm-hmm. in the performance and every choice. Uh and whenever we that's one of the reasons I love working with him is that he he, he always wants to go for that potency in music, which mm-hmm. is to 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 create that emotional subtext uh it, and 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 always pushed me to go as far as i could with that um and uh yeah so the, so it's a very unique film uh, and 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 the two films are taken as a whole really do feel like a, a journey uh, and a cathartic experience yeah and you know you mentioned scale and i wondered i don't think i mean i don't think anyone really could have ever predicted how big you know of an event the first one became in 2017. I mean, it just was a worldwide phenomenon. It became the highest grossing horror film of all time. You know, going into chapter two, did that outside context, you know, affect the approach to this score? Like, did you, I mean, I, I, and I'm wondering probably it affected the production itself, just making it bigger and better, you know, like bolder and, and whatnot with the scope. But, you know, did that translate to the music too? Well, I was lucky enough to have a, a much bigger s- scope in terms of um, we we could use a much larger orchestra and we ha- we were you know there's a, there's also the music the movie just demanded that it yeah. wasn't so much of uh, a practical thing of uh, let's just throw more money at this it was like this story requires so much a, a much grander canvas mm-hmm. uh, and and every department had to rise to that um, and I I just what was so exciting was returning to these themes um, and and the, the sort of philosophy of the first score, and then just amping it up with 27 years of of m- almost maturing is the wrong yeah. word, but that that sense that something has has had time to gestate and and evolve, and then you return to it. Um, that was that was the kind of feeling I was trying to to create, um, and of course it's the most exciting thing in the world when you're you know, part of a movie which which is a huge hit, and and I was I felt so lucky to have been part of that. Um, but when you return to it, 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 you have to put all that to one side and then think only about the storytelling and and the fact that you know here's an opportunity, and you know what is our our last opportunity in many ways to 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 kind of bring this home for for the audience in such a way that they really feel that sense of conclusion mm-hmm. and catharsis. Um, and, and, and a big part of that was that philosophy of, of really going big and, and not, not holding back in, in, on any other choices. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean use a huge orchestra and write a lot of music. It was more about like the, the choices need to, needed to be that much more ambitious mm-hmm. at, at every turn. Well, you know, you'd mentioned, I, I like the idea of the maturing because that's such a, you know, key aspect of this story. And, you know, with the piano being kind of the backbone of the score and it fuels so much of the innocence with the kids in the original one, um, you know, going into this second chapter, 
what were your own personal challenges in, in, in trying to find that sort of adulthood for the adults and, you know, evolving past themes and making them somewhat new, but also echoes of the past. Like you kind of had to, you know, juggle a little bit there. Was that a struggle for you? I think, you know, it's, it's always a struggle when, when yeah. you start any new film and, yeah. and, and it's the best kind of struggle because you, you have to force yourself to start with a blank canvas, uh, so that, that every choice you make is utterly bespoke and, and of the fabric of this movie uh, mm-hmm. and the filmmaker's own choices and, and how he sees the music fitting in with that and then what, how you're going to interpret that and, and make it, you know, bring your own aspect and own voice to it. But with this particular film, the, I think one of the biggest challenges was to almost, um, you know, run with those, those themes which have, you know, become a big part of the first film uh, and, and reinvent them in such a way that they didn't feel like we're just, you know, just for the sake of it changing that everything had to have a reason and a context. Um, and I found that the, the big trick was actually finding a new way of harmonizing uh, these, mm. these themes and, get, and, and also giving their, the, their context more meaning. So that Pennywise's main theme in the first movie is pretty much exclusively attached to him in, in the second movie, that theme actually takes on a much bigger role. Uh, it, it becomes like the, 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 the main theme of the movie. If you think, like the, it's almost like the dairy theme. You can't really give it a, a character name. It just becomes the it theme. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and, and you hear it much more frequently. And every time you hear it, 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 it goes one step further in terms of the orchestration, harmonic choices. Um, and it was very interesting sort of, seeing if that tune, which was designed to be quite an innocuous, strange chromatic theme, which never really found a, uh, you know, a conclusion, um, could it scale up to being, you know, the main theme? And, and unfortunately it could. Um, and with that brings all kinds of other challenges to, mm-hmm. to kind of execute that. And, and, we, and it was very important also to come up with new themes as well, oh, totally. um, so that there were, there were, you know, that sense of development and the fact that, you know, the, the conceptually too, the, the idea of memory and trauma, uh, there's, there's a sort of quite an existential um, thread through, through, the, through the film now. Um, and, but again, like any, any project, even if it, it's part, because again, this isn't a sequel, it's part two yeah. of, a, of a much longer story. Um, I think that the most important part was, I remember when I was writing the first movie, knowing there would be a part two, was to leave enough to then return to and and, and develop in, in the second part. That's very wise. But of course, it's, it's so hard to do because you want to throw everything at the film itself. Yeah. I, I, personally, I'm just glad that two years passed because of course, you know, you change as well yourself oh, totally. in that time. And, and I think that that was a big part of it as well. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, just in that time alone, I mean, especially your amazing Hail Mary uh, score for Blade Runner 2049, which was just fantastic. And one of our favorites of that year. Um, and I know that that was kind of a, a fast 180. And, um, you know, I given the, the you know proximity of time, I did wonder, did you have a little bit more flexibility leading up to chapter two versus chapter one? Um, you know, was there more of a time crunch? Like, how, was it kind of the same? It, it was similar. I, I had about about five months uh, oh, wow. to work on it, which was, um, I think the, the difference was we had a lot more recording time um, just because there was a lot more music to record. Um, so, yeah, the, the process was a little bit longer mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, but I had the advantage of, you know, 18 months of kind of whenever I wasn't writing or something else, uh, you know, just thinking about it and, yeah. you know, reading the book and, and just really kind of just starting to kind of conceptualize so that by the time as you got down to writing, there were some, some things in place. Oh, that's interesting. So you were, re- you were actually reading the book then from Stephen King. That's, that's really interesting. Right. Oh, awesome. Had you, had you read Stephen King prior to that or um, are you a fan of his work? Oh, huge fan. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I've been, since I was a kid, I've always loved his books. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of amazing <laughs> to get the call when, when I did that a couple of years ago. Had you read the book uh, prior to doing this production? 
No, um, when when I got the job, I was I was like, okay, I really should read the book, but of course, it's so huge. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't I didn't quite finish it. I, I got as far as I think the first sort of thirty percent, and then I just realised I could either read this book or or write the score. So I should. Uh, so it was nice to have that intervening time where I could sit down and read it properly. When uh, when you were reading it for ahead of chapter two, did you have? Were you listening to your score um, while reading it? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, I never li- listen to my scores. When I finish them, I I, I, I always move on to the next. I never listen. Interesting. Um, I, ha- I hate making sure reels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it's <laughs> it's interesting because yeah, it's um you put everything into it and uh-huh. then it's done, um and and you just want to save yourself for the next one in, yeah. in a way and, and have that philosophy of, of, you know, treating each new project as, as a completely new, um, as, you know, it's a, you need to bring a new aspect of yourself every mm-hmm. time. Um, and uh, even if it's a sequel, um, you know, there's, there's a new story to be told always. Yeah. It's a little like what Don Henley says in a uh, boys of summer. It's like, you can't look back. You never look back. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, right. yeah. So w- with talking about respective themes, you know, there's seven members, there's Pennywise, there's dairy, there's just, you know, there's Bowers. Did you, um, you know, try to kind of carve out like respective themes for each, you know, person? Um, did you have each loser in mind? I mean, especially with the walking tours and this one, you know, where they all kind of go off on their own. With- Mm-hmm. Um, the Losers Club for me is always has always had its own feeling, mm-hmm. uh, and as such, there is a Losers Club theme, which is you know the the, the piano piece every twenty seven years, um, which when you don't see the concept, you obviously you hear that tune for the first time with you know Bill's uh, and George's mother playing it um, with the rain outside. It's just a piece of music, but it but it kind of it's deliberately very contemplative and quite emotional and surprising harmonically. Yeah. In the same way as the complexity of that of the of the relationships of the Lucas cover, and there's a moment in in this in the second movie. I don't want to say too much, so not to spoil anything. But it's one of the the flat the moments where we flash back yeah. to a, a moment with the with the Losers Club that we didn't see in the first movie. But it's such an integral part of the story, um, and that was the very first time I, I made the explicit connection between that theme, which I just called every twenty-seven years, and the Losers Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was it was a special moment for me to be able to finally like say yes, that is the Losers Club theme. Um, and so as such, it was it, there wasn't really a need to then you know give individual tunes to to each. With the exception with each member, with the exception of Beverly, yeah, um, she has such an impact on the group. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, particularly the relationship with Bill and then Ben, and the way that you know, the complexity of, of the, the, the the poem, uh, your hair is winter fire, and you know the, that that beautiful subplot of, yeah. of how when she eventually realizes who wrote that um, again, that, that, that unfolds. So that so there is the Beverly theme. Um, which starts life in, in a very simple form, and it's just the kind of from the point of view of, of Bill and the other the other boys in the in the club, of course. But eventually, that tune uh, evolves into what becomes the the, the well. It, it, they're two separate themes actually, but the blood oath um, theme and also the the sense of memory and nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's inspired by Beverly's presence and and sort of emanates outwards into that. You know, the, the, there's a very beautiful moment which I'm not going to say anything about <laughs> towards the end of the film, where 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 it, the only thing that I could possibly do was to reprise that in in that context mm-hmm. that the that the losers club is this is anchored in love and anchored in this unbreakable friendship that lasts these their, their, their whole lives and, yeah. and that is ultimately at the core of this film is is how powerful that is you know, oh, true friendship what is what, what what is that and and how the healing power of that and 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 just how profound that is that, and, that that's what really drove the, the score oh and, and honestly i think you connect with it you know just right on target i mean that the, the, for me the most affecting part of this movie 
is just that entire narrative for sure. And just those emotions and, and those feelings. And, you know, I found myself just welling up so many times throughout the first chapter and especially towards the end of this chapter. And I think a lot of it does have to do with those echoes and those um, in the, the returns to those signature melodies. And, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, a few months ago, we actually were speaking to composer Christopher Young. And, you know, I asked him, you know, why is it why is it that we don't really have too many signature like themes in you know especially in horror these days you know like back in the 80s you'd be able to recall the friday the 13th or a nightmare on elm street or halloween and you know and 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 a lot of it he was saying well it's kind of unorthodox these days because there's like you know most composers and studios want soundscapes and i actually felt like you know both chapters here and your work really do kind of harken back to those days in a way but also kind of melding with the you know the world of today of just kind of going with those soundscapes and atmospheres and i wondered like what, did you have that in mind was that a conceit of yours to to be able to kind of create um you know signature themes in the in, in the style and vein of those movies i've i've always loved uh the the film the films you know i grew up in the 80s with yeah. at the peak of the well the spielberg williams collaboration mm-hmm. and was utterly obsessed with star wars and et and back to the future and and these these films which where the score is so much a character in in the narrative and um i mean it's it's amazing watching a movie like back to the future and imagining the music isn't there and just how much smaller it would feel i know yeah. uh, in many ways and and and, and it's I always find that magical, and mm-hmm. and there, the Andy's film, Andy Muschietti's filmmaking style is so powerful and visceral and, and virtuosic, and like I was saying earlier, you know, his, his emphasis on emotion and emotional narrative uh, is always at the forefront, and he's also a fantastic musician. He, he understands music um, in, in such a deep way, um, and has such incredible, such such great taste musically too. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, coming coming back to work with Andy was just it was just such a joy because we already had had such such an enjoyable time basically sharing the, the same, you know, he's also a huge fan of the music of the eighties, both not just film music, but just generally the music of that time. And um we yeah, we we just have that shared love. And ultimately the the the, the movie just demands it mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so much uh there's just so much depth to this story and without theme it's so hard to to live up to that musically um it, it's a, it's a movie which was you know the film rejects a lot of um of, you know if you were to do a very contemporary modern score which works for so many other kinds of films it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a bad thing if it, if it works for the film it's the right thing to do but this movie just, you know, it was a it was a sort of film where unless you were always being as as narrative as possible, um, and it, it just this just didn't work yeah. um, musically narrative, uh, and also the the long form approach where you, you set up um, thema- you know, thematic tension at various points that needs to be resolved in in that arc form um, that that was also very powerful part of how the film works structurally mm-hmm. um so i was able to to really you know run with that um so that when there's moments of horror it's always in the context of of a, of a story point where you are so invested mm-hmm. in the outcome of that moment because you're so connected with those characters yeah um so so it, it's it's strange in a way you know obviously it's it's out there as a, as a horror film, but it's in my head. It's there's so much more to it than that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and certainly from my from from my musical point of view, using theme from uh, as a you know to connect the character and to to propel the story was was really the only way we could do it. What are your favorite themes in these two scores? It's it's a, such a difficult question because there's in my head there's always more to do you know mm-hmm. i'm never fully happy with with any score i finish uh, <laughs> a so, so asking me what's my fav- favorite theme is, is a tricky question because i you know i but i mean in terms of my the thing which i probably took me the longest to really get right was the losers club theme that every 27 years piece the yeah. piano piece uh, I love that. because it, it had 
it, it had to feel um, there has there had to be this sort of inherent simplicity and honesty because they're kids, and and so this you know you will always get the truth. <laughs> uh, but there was um, in terms of emotion, um, but then of course it needed to live up to the complexity of their of their evolving relationships and and where eventually that would go. Um, in terms of how they they come to realize that unless they function as a group they they they're not going to survive at all mm-hmm. um so i think as a theme that that was probably the one which um and deliberately it's used very sparingly in the film it's yeah. it, it it's used only as a as um a bookmark yeah. effectively at the beginning and the end of the first movie and then in the middle and at the end of the second film um but that if you use it more than that it, it becomes it's too much um so yeah, that that was certainly the, the the one of the hardest themes to to come up with. Uh, so yeah, if that's any measure uh, to your question. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's wonderful. I, and you know, and I and I mm. kind of on that topic, and I know this definitely was a challenging theme. I wondered what were some challenging scenes in this one, especially because you know, with chapter two, I feel like there's just such a a big mix of you know drama and horror but also comedy you know there's i was surprised by you know Mm. some more comedic elements in this movie and i wondered did that right you know did that prove difficult also to kind of dance around a little bit too right um i mean every scene had its had its own unique set of challenges um and also connecting everything uh so it feels you know very much part of this mission um that that they that they create for themselves as, as adults when they come back um interestingly probably one of the hardest sequences was one of the simplest which is a montage uh where um again not wanting to give too much away but we see a flashback of stan mm-hmm. at his bar mitzvah and um and that and that sets off a series of uh, images and, and memories of key moments within the losers club uh it's a very short sequence it's about 90 seconds long but i was still rewriting that cue as we were recording there were so many iterations and andy and i were just both trying to figure out how to really bring home the 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 truth of of what that scene is which is a, it's a turning point in the story Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminds the audience of the power of connection that these that these kids have, and how just that is enough to defeat this unimaginable shape shifting entity from another dimension. Um, that the 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 sheer the sheer the potent humanness of that, yeah. uh, and I think that's why it was such such a struggle because when you're trying to capture that in music you know you can so easily do too much yeah. and 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 be too complex and it was actually about stripping everything away down to something so simple uh and that's often the hardest thing to do oh totally um, you know it's 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 so fun to go all in with a hundred piece orchestra and choir and go completely as big as you can go and that's just really fun um uh it still has its own challenges but yeah going the other direction that that yeah we we <laughs> nailed it towards the end of the recording period and finally we we, we got that one down well thank god um, <laughs> yeah, yeah you know um yeah. one, one of the things that i also had noticed in this one is that it, it seems like it gets a little more experimental um you know there's there mm-hmm. especially, especially on the track you know your winner you know your hair is winter fire um there seems to be this right. like this you know, very garish, uh, not garish, but very um, abrasive crunching effect that also made, like kind of made me recall right. of, um, you know, like Hans Zimmer's work in like The Dark Knight when um, him and I believe James mm-hmm. Newton Howard were kind of doing some crazy uh, wire work there. I, you know, wanted to ask, like, because this literally sounds like you're bending a pipe. And I wondered if you had any unorthodox <laughs> instrumentation for this go around. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it was one of the things Andy and I were trying to experiment with was we, you know, in contrast with the scale of the orchestra in, in the final part of the film, we wanted to see what happens when we go incredibly small uh, with mm-hmm. literally one or two musicians uh, and record them with about, you know, seven microphones, but as close as you can get without yeah. interfering with their playing uh, and just really get them to kind of 
almost destroy the instrument within reason uh, using, you know, all kinds of extended techniques developed by composers like Penderecki, Lutislavski, and John Cage. Uh, you know, the, that, the, the height of experimental concert music in the 60s and 70s, also in Darmstadt in Germany, uh, where composers really went off the rails <laughs> in the best possible way uh, sonically. Um, and, you know, having gone through that incredible experience on Blade Runner, collaborating with my dear friend Hans and these incredible filmmakers, where we had the opposite thing where we weren't, were not using the orchestra at all. We were only using synthesizers and electronics. Um, you know, there you have you know, literally everything is possible. It was that the challenge of what happens if we are using only acoustic instruments, which we can then manipulate digitally, um, but the the you hear the human struggle in the performance, mm. uh, which you can't necessarily get. And it was it seemed very apt in certain sequences, to to especially where you know the fact that Pennywise is that much more vengeful, mm-hmm. um, and 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 Henry Bauer's character is, is is much more important in this in this film too, as almost like Pennywise is a sort of lieutenant almost. Um, there was that need to to come up with a new sound that wasn't just everything we've heard before. Yeah. And we created that using, um, we, we hired for for th- uh, nine hours, we worked with the full orchestra about three months before we did the final scoring, yeah. where we I recorded probably about two hours of material away from picture, um, all experimental sonic textures, to, you know, both using themes and not. Uh, and uh, and the big part of that was then, you know, letting the whole orchestra go, the end, and 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 leaving just basically a string quartet, uh, and 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 that material got used a lot in the in the final um, final thing. Yeah. God, it was used to brilliant effect though. I just loved it. It's it's just it's so it's very spooky. Like just listening to it with headphones, um, it just it, uh, it just sent like shivers up my spine a couple of times. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Hans Zimmer, and I, I always wondered, like, how did you two hook up, and do you have any more collaborations in the future together? Um, well, Hans has become truly a mental figure for me and mm-hmm. a very, very close friend. Um, he he reached out to me, I and mean, he tells the story much better. Uh, he heard a, one of my score, one of my very early scores, I think, on Apple TV back when, even before. I mean, this is going back maybe seven years now. Um, and he he reached out to me um, through an email he found, but um, he didn't get a response because it actually wasn't my email address. <laughs> and uh, so from, from his point of view, he'd written this lovely, very generous email to this young unknown composer who just didn't bother replying. Uh, and and then eventually through a mutual friend, Richard Harvey, because I, I was planning on moving to LA and one of the first things you, you do is see if you can talk to Hans just to, to get some advice and I asked Richard to connect us and he he called Hans and said, oh is that that guy yeah he never he, but, but the funny thing is is that when we did eventually connect through Richard about a week later Hans received an email from someone called Ben Valfish who said I think you mean the, the composer I'm the lawyer Ben Valfish he'd, he'd, <laughs> he'd written to a lawyer in Texas uh, so it was just one of those funny things, which uh, he's. But again, he tells the story much better than I do. Yeah. Um, and um, and we we just very quickly formed a friendship. Uh, we didn't work together for two or three years um, after that initial meeting we had, uh, and then we worked together on Twelve Years a Slave. He invited me to to mm-hmm. contribute to that score, which really was the beginning of 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 you know what's become a, a, an incredibly important relationship to me, just in terms of. You know, there's no one like Hans in terms of mentorship and in yeah. terms of extraordinary insight into the the art and the craft of, of storytelling through music. Mm-hmm. You know, he 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 has such an innate sense of not just story for for its own sake, but how how you can be a pioneer and and think you know think almost like a revolutionary. I mean, I think that's always been his thing is yeah. to constantly disrupt and change what feels established and um i feel very lucky to have spent so much time with him and he's also you know he, he always describes this of you know when he 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 opened up a relationship between myself and gore Vinsky uh, for 12 years a slave uh, sorry for not for, for a cure for wellness mm-hmm. 
Um, and and that process, uh, you know, I think was the, the key turning point for me in my own personal uh, journey from being just a musician to really starting to think purely as a, you know, to think as a filmmaker yeah. uh, and to think in terms of story. And, um, you know, so those sort of relationships which he's enabled have been so instrumental. And, um, and yes, I would be so happy to collaborate with Hans again. It's always just such an exciting and, and you know, it's like being in a band, you, you, you know, you get together almost like two songwriters and, and you, you're constantly challenging each other mm-hmm. and, and, you know, com- coming up with ideas and, and critiquing each other's and that kind of back and forth is always very inspiring with Hans. And, um, so yes, let's see what happens. You know, it's, we've both been very busy with our own, you know, solo project. I mean, him obviously yeah. the biggest movies in the world, and and I've, I, I, I'm I'm just uh, yeah. If, if, if the, the chance comes up, I, I would be honoured to yeah continue working with him. Um, and and we, you know, we're, we're we're in touch all the time. Well, have you and um, Andy Machetti uh, discussed collaborating further? Yes, I mean, you know, Andy and I have, have become real yeah. <laughs> i mean there's, there's a great partnership there which yeah. i i i just was so lucky to have because um he's the kind of filmmaker you know you there are so few like you know sort of two or three in a generation really um he's he's, he's such a visionary and, and a, a virtuoso and i feel very lucky to have uh you know established a relationship i do with him so absolutely it, it would be a, a huge joy Got it. And I always love that when that happens, when you could get, you know, the filmmaker and composer Mm -hmm. that, you know, continues down the road. Mr. Walfish, thank you so much for speaking to me this afternoon. Thank you. Well, of course. Yeah, we'll be in touch. All right. Thanks again. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Still with us? Good. We're not through yet. The waters are rough, but I think I see some light up ahead. Something tells me that's where we'll find Andy. Stay strong. Stay together. Hi, Michael. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very good. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, now that both chapters are out, they're both huge successes. This is quite a journey. How are you feeling? Do you feeling, you know, assured? Do you feel nostalgic uh, a little bit? Uh, you know, what's going on through your head Yeah, right now? both. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of mixed emotions. It's yeah. a, you know, it's a whirlpool of, of emotions. Uh, I'm very, you know, satisfied and, and I have this like sense of, of closure. Mm-hmm. That it's uh, very important after all, you know, all those years. Uh, but again, you know, it's it's sad um, because you know it's a, it's a it's been a journey with a lot of like people, you know, human element there that was very important, and it will never happen the same way it did, you know. Mm-hmm. Chapter one, uh, chapter two was completely different, but chapter two was really really exhilarating because we were like it's like it was like going back to that great summer uh so we went back to port hope Derry, you know get together with the family uh both cast and crew and and yeah but you know it couldn't like it really couldn't have gone better like the outcome of it was just the second movie that was you know people who like really loved the first first movie really got what the second movie was yeah yeah and 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 it, it was like everything they they expected expected and more. 
there's been a lot of chatter uh, now that both chapters are out and and all there for consumption. Yeah. That you know, some people are taking it as a coming of age movie. Some people are you know approaching it and still digesting it as a horror film. How do you describe these yeah. two movies as a whole? Well, it's both things. You know, it's like uh, it's um it's a two it's a two voiced movie. It's mm-hmm. a two voiced uh, story. It's a uh, it's two two different perspectives mm-hmm. on life. Uh, and I told I told this before, you know. It's like basically like what I think what it is is a the love letter to childhood. Yeah. And it talks about the end of childhood and you know, antagonizes childhood to adulthood, and uh, and we see this story told from two perspectives: mm-hmm. one to the eyes of of the characters as kids, and the second one to the eyes of of these characters as adults. Uh, there is a, you know. There is a unity mm-hmm. in this, like two sides. It's like a balance that, that you know, finally reaches, you know, uh, a one voice. And I like to see it, you know, as that, as, as one story told from from two perspectives. Yeah. Two years ago when we spoke, <laughs> I don't think any of us could have ever predicted just how big of a phenomenon the first one would become. And, you mm-hmm. know, going into chapter two. Did the blockbuster success of Chapter One change your approach at all? You know, when you no, were... well, it's it's just you know they ask me about like, sometimes they ask me about the pressure. Did the pressure like you know rise suddenly because it was like there there was more expectation and stuff? But it really it really didn't. Or the effect of of of, of it, Chapter One being a success uh, for me was uh, very stimulating. Mm-hmm. Um. So it threw me into, you know, just like making something better. Um, not that I wasn't planning to do something good. But, <laughs> of course not. But no. if anything, it did. <laughs> if anything, it, it just, you know, excited me more. There was never, um, you know, like a, a moment of like of, of freezing or, or saying, oh, what am I going to do now? No, it's like quite the opposite. It was like really stimulating because, you know, the love of of the people can only... Uh, you know, reassure you. Um, and uh, being that it's a story that's like the second part of a story of, of the second part of something that they know already with characters that they love, uh, it didn't like it, it, it just throws you into okay, let's do this with and it, it just propulses you into, into you know, basically giving you giving them the conclusion. Yeah, um, of course, I had you know. On the other hand, I had, you know, a lot of uh, bigger budget, mm-hmm. more resources. Uh, and, and I knew that I could actually shoot my movie with more days, more time, more money. And that was like reassuring, too, because I had to basically cut a lot of corners on the floor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With the budget limitations. Uh, not that it was a, you know, a, a low budget for a, for a horror movie was pretty high but mm-hmm. you see the movie it's a big uh, chapter one is smaller than chapter two but it's still a big movie with a scope yeah. and you know a lot of characters and uh so yeah but uh, the truth is that I, I i i had budget limitations i had to you know to compromise some things from the first one and knowing that that wouldn't happen in the second one was uh it's even more you know stimulating Totally. I mean, chapter two even takes seemingly more of a surrealistic approach at times, you know, like with the puzzle pieces, the dual shots of Ben and Bev. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. feel like you had a little bit more free reign because of that? Like, was your, did you just have like a bigger sandbox? Is, you know, especially bigger like, sandbox. Yeah, definitely. You know, when I think I don't, I, I don't normally, I don't, I don't think of money when I'm like thinking of story uh, or, or sequences or, you know, set pieces. Uh, that comes later, as a you know, <laughs> like when I come and I say like, okay, this is this is the, the this is the you know the scene, this is the the sequence, and then you know I talk to my sister who's a producer and and line producer and it's like, okay, this is the but this is what your your uh, your scene costs. So I never um, like you know cut myself before uh, before creating a sequence. It's just a bit of reality at the end when yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's like, okay, but it never, it, it never like made me cut off stuff. 
You mm-hmm. always have to, you know, when you real, when you get back the cost of the scene, but everyone's on board. So they ask, they might ask you, okay, so you have to make a balance here because we're a little over. Uh, we need to, you know, maybe cut somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so that juggling is part of of really it's part of the for director's work. You know, uh, and it always it, it's it always been. Um, you have to pick your battles, yeah. In a way, uh, because not everything, you know, you can't have everything. No, no. Know, <laughs> basically, uh, of course, the bigger the budget, the, the, a little more you can have. Yeah. But you're always like playing on the on the edge, you know. Mm-hmm. Always, always playing on the edge, and and I I I met you know like sort of like you know budgetary challenges on this one too, because the bigger you know. The more resources you get, also the bigger. I mean, this is starts from from a, from a, from the story as it should be told, right? Yeah. So the studio gives you more money, but then you go a little further, and that's when you meet like you know the walls of the budget, and the, then you have to negotiate uh, whether it's you yourself basically balancing the budget and and uh, basically pondering the importance of each scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how much you know resources you have to give to either, or going back to the studio and asking for more money. Yeah. Uh, well, it seems like you got a lot the, in. And that dance, you know. Yeah, I, I can't mean, complain. I, yeah. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, of, of all the movies that I made, this, this is the one where I like I got more. You've talked about how you have you know a director's cut for the first one and for the second one, and you know you teased a comprehensive cut. You know, putting them together. How would you see yeah. that cut? Would you? Try to rearrange it similar to the book. Super, yeah, it's called. We call it the supercut. Uh, <laughs> it's it's very early stage, you know. Like we're like sort of discussing. The studio is not like completely, uh, you know. It's not a decision yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, it's not. It, it won't be like intertwined or anything like the way it's in the book. But it will contain uh, both. Uh, sorry, all the scenes that were deleted from both movies. Yeah. For. You know, for pacing reasons, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll we'll have like new material, which is stuff that I haven't shot yet. Oh wow! So are you, you are you going to go back to do reshoots? Is, yes, yes. Oh. But it, it's, it's again, it's not a it's not a uh, even a discussion. We're, we're just like toys with the with the idea mm-hmm. with the studio, but you know, you have to like we're not there yet. <laughs> wow. but, but it would be great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, imagine like having in front of you like the two the two movies, view them, you know, see them in a, as a as a whole, yeah. which is something that I never did yet. And you know, recalibrating things and say, okay, you know what it would would be great like seeing whatever Richie flying on the macro or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Speaking of recalibration, you have so much of chapter one that's influencing and informing chapter two. Were there moments where you realized that you wish you could have tinkered with the first one? Until no, you know what? No, not really. I was frustrated on the first after the first one because I couldn't do things that I ended up doing on the second one. Mm-hmm. And we found the logic. We found the perfect logic for not uh, having it in the first one. Like the whole clubhouse thing, uh, I couldn't find a way to put it on on chapter one. You know, when you, there's a lot of things that you like from a book, but then when you translate the story into a film language, you really have to squeeze the story into like a series of events mm-hmm. that are propulsing and they're consequential and, and, and they make like for, you know, for, for a great film experience. And unfortunately you have to have those, some of those events out because they just don't fit the new narrative. Yeah. And the clubhouse was one of them. The clubhouse, it's this is like the place that saw them, saw this group like really flourish as, yeah. as a group of friends. And uh, yeah, so I, I I was in love with the clubhouse, and then I, I managed to put it back in the in the second one. You know, there had been a lot of discussions about the you know this quote unquote origin story with Pennywise, and you know, was that ever shot? Was that ever you know intended to be included in either chapter? Is it something that you would want to revisit for a sequel Sorry, of sorts, like a Pennywise origin? There, there is a scene that we shot that is uh, a scene in the you know 1600s. I decided not to put it in the, the film because it was a little confusing. Yeah, yeah, I think you know you know what the problem is like. There's 
like people want sometimes to know a little more, but mm-hmm. if you give them too much, then, then they are, you know, they're like disappointed. <laughs> yeah. It's like a magic trick in a way. Yeah. And uh, I think if you go back to the book, something similar happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen King remains very cryptic about, you know, the other side, the origin of Pennywise. And he taught, you know, he teases you with Bob, Robert Gray and this and that and the turtles. And then at the end, he sort of like, you know, unveils, like opens the curtain and shows you a lot about the, you know, the other side, the macro earth. But I learned from that that sometimes it's better not to, you know, to, to keep, it's better to keep things a little cryptic to generate that mystery. And it's a balance that you have to find for yourself, you know, as you're putting the, the, the movie together. And the editing has a lot, so much to do with mm-hmm. that, you know? Yeah. Um, you have a comprehension of the story with the script and the effect that it has on the audience. Mm-hmm. But then, when you when your movie is edited, that that you know that notion is is uh, is more clear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And well, of course, there's this thing called the test screening, which is give <laughs> give you like a more vivid image. Yeah. Vivid notion of what what people are feeling at every point. You know. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so that scene regarding that scene is a, is a scene that I love. I would have to see how we orchestrated in the in the big cut if if it happens. Mm-hmm. Would you ever consider making another chapter of like a prequel of sorts? Uh, it's hard. It's, it's too soon to tell. Of course, like, you know, it's, it's the, the universe and the, you know, the, the cosmology of, of this story is so, so rich. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King, you know, makes this huge, like mythology just as a, as a canvas for the story of the losers and Pennywise. But it's so rich, you know, and it really has like, you know, outstanding events in the past that are so awesome. Like, yeah. you know, the story of Bob Gray. It's a huge mystery there. Yeah. Bob Gray, who was the clown, who Bob Gray, who, you know, painted his face and became Pennywise. Why? Why did it took this as a, the basic incarnation? How did it happen? You know, there's a lot of questions. It's very intriguing to me. Yeah. Well, speaking of universes, <laughs> you know, like cinematic universes are all the rage. And with it being part of Warner Brothers, which owns like so many King properties and they're going to be issuing out Dr. Sleep soon. Was there ever any talk of trying to kind of set any sort of foundation for that to maybe springboard to other King properties within this one? I know there's a lot of Easter eggs to a lot of his works uh, within both movies, but was yeah. that something that was ever discussed behind the scenes? For like for me to direct other Stephen King movies, I mean, uh, that, that or, or even King just King or even just like planting the seeds for something and within these <laughs> within these movies. You know? No, it wasn't. No, 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 not as a. It wasn't. No, it was never like a plan. Mm-hmm. You know, of course it's, it's it's great to think about it, and you know, of course I'm excited about the you know exploring other possible stories in within the 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 the, the mythology of of it in the past. Mm-hmm. But no, it was never a plan. The plan was always like making it as two movies and and stop. Probably smart. <laughs> um, it was. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, I think you had enough on your plate uh, at that. But point. I never, to be honest, I never, I never, I never had a discussion with the studio about you know making like the commercial implications of it, the commercial like possibilities, opportunities. I never had one. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the more touching moments, especially, you know, just as a longtime King, you know, reader and uh, just fan is seeing him in the movie. And this is probably his most prominent cameo. You know, how long was King on set? You know, as a longtime fan yourself, was it in, was it kind of intimidating to shoot him on the scene? He came for uh, for three days. So he, wow. he, you know, I offered him the cameo. Um, it was funny because, you know, I... Uh, he asked, I, I, wrote, I wrote an email to him, you know, offering the cameo, and he said, well, you have to uh, have in mind that I'm a jinx. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, every movie that I've been in, bombed. <laughs> so he, he said that as a joke, you know, I don't know how, <laughs> how much of that is true, but I, I thought it was very funny. Yeah. So I wrote yeah. him back and I said, I think we can, we can, we can break the spell. Yeah. And... And he was in. He was immediately in, and um, 
he the scene the scene like was like it was a little scene and then when when Kat, when when Steven signed in I thought of making it bigger yeah. just because you know I can't help myself <laughs> and I thought yeah. if you're gonna have it let let you know let's uh let's make him play yeah. because he's a you know he's he's great he he can do it so uh so the scene grew up a little bit in the pages um more a, a couple more lines exchange and stuff but the the the, the time that he really come, came alive it was on, on set oh. and you know we started we improvised this idea where you know uh McAvoy says uh you know starts stuttering so McAvoy, so so james uh came up with the idea of stuttering and generating like this frustrating moment uh and I said, okay, so if we're going to do that. Let's make it really frustrating. And uh, so that's why I asked uh, Steve to say things that, you know, all the things that start with B, all, the, all those words that start with B, because like, you know, McAvoy comes in and says, bowling ball, baseball, cards. So it was it was great. It was great because uh, then everyone got excited about the, the, the possibilities of the scene, and and I could see like Stephen writing on his little notebook like all the words that like <laughs> started with B of objects that you can find on the on the thrift shop, and and he wrote like fifteen, and we shut we shut them all. Oh wow! So <laughs> came up with uh, words like Bobby and Ken. Uh, bulldozer bird cage and, the, and the, so in the longer version of the scene he he says them all but it's oh like God. it's a little bit of an overkill yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> awesome long... uh, yeah thanks no, that's... no we, we had a lot of fun uh, and directing yeah. him was like a piece of cake like re... i um you know when it was very relaxed yeah and at one point i you know it just a, a sort of like we were having a lot of fun. So I just forgot that, you know, I was talking to Stephen King, you know, like that, that hero on a pedestal. It's just like, you know, a very funny guy. Did you, uh, did you get any one-on-one -on -one moments with him uh, on set where you can kind of just like pull him aside and just talk for a little bit or? Oh yeah. Oh, awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But he, all, all, all through, he stayed like three days in Port Hope. Um, I mean, he could have just like flew in and out, yeah. but he was having such a, you know, I think he had a, a very good time. He came in with uh, with his grandson, Ethan, Aww. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Hill's son, yeah, um, who is in college now, and yeah. he's a big fan of, of Chapter One. So we, we had a, a real, real good time there. Oh, and I, and, and, I, and I bet uh, he yeah, must and, have loved being with like all the kids and stuff there. I mean, it's got to be, it's a playground for the most part. <laughs> I, I think for him, absolutely. I think for him, it was, you know, like he, he really likes uh, chapter one. Yeah. And I think he got like excited about like being around the, you know, in, in production too. And, um, you know, there's, there's been so many adaptations of his work. So, you know, there's good and not so good. And I think that the, the fact that the chapter one was so well received and that, you know, he personally liked it so much, it was, mm -hmm. must have been uh, very gratifying for him. Oh, totally. Um, he, uh, the, the day he came on set, we were, we're in the middle of a scene, which is a scene where, um, where uh, Eddie gets stabbed in the face by Henry Bowers. And I remember BJ, like, you know, being on standby there inside the set, I was out of the set with, on my monitor and Stephen King arrives and, we, you know, we, we greet him and blah, blah. And I said, uh, and I asked uh, Stephen to to shout action <laughs> so he could, actually, he directed that scene. Oh, and awesome. he never realized that it was, <laughs> yeah. So it was like action. <laughs> oh, Stephen. Love it. I action. love it. And then, yeah. 
well, yeah. you know, th- there's some really interesting changes with just the narrative itself. And I know when we, we talked back in 2017, we were really trying to pry to know if Maturin and, and the turtle were all going to be involved. And I just thought that yeah. the way that you incorporated a lot of the spiritual elements was just, I mean, I was literally sitting in the screen and just being like, I can't believe they're fucking doing this. This is amazing. Was there a lot of discussion on how far you were going to lean into that? Was there ever a draft or even more ideas to go even further into it? Like even a, like a literal appearance? of Maturin? Yeah, well, I did, you know, the, 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 uh, there was something essential and conceptual that I always knew that it was like, uh, I, I want to keep the perspective in which the story is told mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. human. I want to keep it, you know, in the human drama from the human perspective, from this character's perspective. Jumping to the other side and, and seeing like all, you know, the or the place where actually uh, it comes from. For me, I I, am, uh, I didn't want to run the risk of making this uh, a fantasy movie. Yeah. And so yeah, for me that was a that, that was always a question. You know, how mm-hmm. much of the other thing it should reveal, and I didn't want to go sort of, you know, quote dark tower, mm-hmm. where we're always you know the the, the fantasy element is is very very present so yeah and that the only reason for that is just like keeping you know keeping the story about uh a human experience yeah. uh even though like the you know the the monster or the villain definitely is a you know an interdimensional yeah. evil but yes you know the mentions to the turtle as you know as the force of good mm-hmm. uh so i i keep i kept them you know very subtle and the presence of the turtle is always, you know, very, very, very subtle. I do have a scene that we, you won't see you, that it's not in the movie that I had to lift uh, that has a little more turtle. Oh. In fact, it's an actual turtle. And uh, so when you see McAvoy confronting his fear in the, in the flooded basement, yeah, uh, and he, you know, he kills. Georgie and he kills the, the notion of, of guilt by killing himself as a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, dark, I love it. He just, you know, flow, just jumps back in the water um, and and now he's like, you know, he's lost. There is no way out. And suddenly, like, the, the eyes of, of Pennywise uh, or, or Pennywise Bill that was the, the kid mm-hmm. uh, come out of the dark and it's not the it's, it's not Pennywise. It's the it's the turtle that is swimming uh-huh. just by him, and and he sees the turtle and he's like sort of fascinated. What is this thing? And uh, and very soon after we see the the kids swimming behind it. Oh, that's awesome! And so so just follows them towards the light, and and he emerges in the back in the cavern. Oh, that's uh, so. Cool. so yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful scene, but I had to, you know, I had to leave it out because of, you know, pacing reasons. Yeah. Uh, it was very emotional, but it was it was probably not in the right uh, moment where things had to move faster. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, it's connected. It's a scene that is connected to the cha- to chapter one. Yeah. When you see the, the kids in the quarry and they're like, you know, splashing around. Yeah. One of them says, oh, something in the water. What is it? A turtle. And they all go, they all like go into the water. So this is a bit of what happens, you know, it's a continuation of that scene mm-hmm. where the kids are actually swimming, swimming behind the turtle. Oh, I love yeah. it. Very beautiful, very emotional. But yeah. it's like, you know, in the, in the moment where, where, where the movie is really pacing up and it's like the rhythm is like quick was a bit of a, of a wedge. Are you going to try to fit it into the, con- the, the supercut? What do you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, look, I, I know you're such a huge constant reader. And when we talked last, you seemed uh, interested in doing the jaunt, and now you're attached to roadwork. You know yeah. what? What is drawing you to roadwork, actually? You know, because that's such a that was such a left of the dial choice, and I was I was literally shocked by that when I saw it. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. You know, what what is it about the story? Oh, that's roadwork. Speaking yeah. Well, you know, it's a yeah, it's 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 not the you know roadwork is a more human, mm-hmm. you know, definitely more human drama. That uh, I always uh, I always loved it. You know, it's not probably one not one of his like biggest uh, hits. Yeah. Uh, 
but it always resonated. I can't uh, really explain why, you know, <laughs> like stories like the John also like, like stayed with me for years. And, um, and then, you know, I know Pablo Trapero, since we were in film school, his career like went great. He, he, he's done like so many good movies. And, you know, speaking about uh, things, just like the idea of, of Roadwork came in, came up, and uh, and then he showed a lot of interest in, interest in and uh, so that's how it happened. I, <laughs> I don't know. Are you going to still do the John? Do you think you're still uh, going to chase after that one? We are. Well, that, that has been developing with, <clears throat> you know, with plan B for, for, for a few years, we've been trying to crack it. And, and now like, finally we have a, we have a, a, a writer that can, awesome. that can do it. And so I, I would love to, I would love to, you know, it's tough to crack because it's such, such a great, like short story. Yeah. Uh, but then you have to, you know, expand it uh, into a great, uh, you know, film narrative. Uh, so it, it took a, it took a while, but now I think we got it. I don't want to tell too much. I won't pry too much. (laughs) Well, Mr. Michetti, thank you so much. Um, I will say, speaking on all the horror hounds out there, we absolutely want you to, to bring back a nightmare on Elm street. We think that you're perfect for it. Just make it happen. (laughs) We, after watching this movie, I was like, I I think all of us, Brad Misco over at Brilliant Disgusting brought it up uh, uh, first. And he was just like, how great would it be if he, if he tackled that franchise? So please knock on that door for all of us. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Okay. I have it in mind. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. I can't wait for the super cut and just, Thank you for this this awesome okay. adventure. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm very glad that you that you dig it. Thanks. Have a great one. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. And that's that. Thank you so much for joining us on this adventure through dairy over these past couple of months. We're a little sad to leave, especially since we love the Chinese food. But Christ, do we have so much to look forward to? We've got King's new book, The Institute, to read. Creep show on September 26th. Another trip back to Castle Rock in October, and yes, our highly anticipated return to the Overlook Hotel with Dr. Sleep in November. (laughs) Look, nobody said it was easy being a constant listener. It's actually a little exhausting. That's why we're so fortunate to have you around and why we want to hear from you. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads. (laughs) After all, these are busy times, and we'd be wise to stick together as we continue our journey through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network.